Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 158, I'm Not a Bad Guy. This week, we're discussing season one, episode 13 of Battlestar Galactica, Cobal's Last Gleaming, part two, and season six, episode four of Buffy, Flooded. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. So, Cobal's gla- Glass, Last <laughs> Gleaming, Part 2. Yeah. Uh, I should just let you say it again, because you said it good the first <laughs> did time. did such a good job. Um, yeah, I think you had some production notes, right? Um, uh, yeah, just a, a quick things before, if you could... I can't talk either, so this is going to go really well. Right. Um, a few quick things before we start. Um, first is that uh, it's back to being, this two-part finale is back to being written by Ron Moore, who we haven't had any episodes since the first two of the season. So he kind of mm. goes out and then comes back like at the end. Bookends, um, yeah. Like, bo- exactly. Kind of like Moffat does, I guess. But, um, uh but the story actually is credited to David Icke, who's the kind of executive producer of the series, mm. um, which this is actually his first like writing credit for TV. Um, so even though he doesn't, I guess that's kind of how you get started is you like break a story and sort of craft like the narrative arc. And then uh, Ron Moore went and like wrote the actual screenplays. Mm. So um, kind of, you know, interesting little note, um, especially because, you know, David Icke is with the show throughout. So this is him first kind of stepping into the writing room, I guess. Right. Um, so I also wanted to kind of mention uh, the reception, you know, obviously this has a very uh, memorable and shocking ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, uh, I, I, I don't remember, I didn't actually look up what year they put this out but um if this was from the year that it came out or if it was later i'm not sure but tv guide did a 100 most unexpected tv moments and they put you know this episode on so the kind of shock of the ending was you know you know one of the kind of memorable moments from the series um and i also wanted to mention uh some more of the score by Bear McCreary. I kind of had talked before in, uh, which episode was it? The Hand of God, when he has like, you know, when they kind of told him, we don't want themes, we don't want themes. And then he did a big theme, you know, with singing and bagpipes and everything. And that was kind of a sea change (laughs) in the musical approach to the episode. And so I feel like this is the big follow-up to that. You get the whole um, opera house sequence where the music is not only big and thematic and orchestral um but it even kind of plays a role again in the story itself like you get this thing of they're in an opera house and number six is talking about music and how all of our lives have a melody you know that god has written Mm -hmm. so you know uh music becoming central and even like important to the story itself um and actually the the kind of uh introduction period of the previous episode where it's cutting between the boxing and boomer and sharon and all that kind of thing and there's that kind of little repetitive 
orchestra movement. Um, that's sort of a prelude to the big orchestra piece in the opera house. So he kind of used one to sort of set up little themes that he then sort of climaxed later. Um, hmm. So I'll link to them, you know, they're on YouTube. So the, the prelude is called Passacaglia. And then uh, the, the opera house piece is called The Shape of Things to Come. So, you know, kind of a step forward in terms of the music on the show, I think. Um, so just wanted to bring that up. And I think The Shape of Things to Come is one of like my favorite, you know, pieces that he wrote for the show. And I even remember, I think, seeing that episode for the first time and being impressed by the music. So definitely wanted to point that out. Yeah. It it looks like um, that 100 Most Unexpected Moments came out the same year as this episode, but it was later in the year. Gotcha. Um, but it but the the moments span like from the 1960s up through 2005. Oh, okay. so, so it's a, a a greatest of yeah, kind of thing, yeah. right? Which which is always interesting. So th does that mean that like? you know, it's on the list because it just happened? Or does that mean it's on the list? Like, maybe it didn't get enough, you know, credit and given time, like people would remember it, mm -hmm. you know, whereas they might not remember some of the other ones that are also on the list, you know, so sure, who, who knows, sure. like how that affects it. But yeah, know, anyway, um, would it either fall off the list or move higher? Or rise? Yeah, right. Um, yeah. But I mean, if it's contending with the history of television, I think that kind of shows you, at least in that year, it made its mark as a shocking kind of twist, you know, yeah. that oh, yeah. people, you know, certainly were not, I know I wasn't expecting it the first time I saw that. So, um, yeah, kind of lets you know, at least at that time, the impact that it had. Yeah. So, and um, I would guess that it continued to have one going forward, like. This is certainly in the greatest shock moments that I can think of, you know. Yeah. Um, and I will, I will note that an upcoming episode of Buffy is also on that list. So, um, <laughs> nice. All right. We, we'll, we we'll have to come back to that. We won't talk about that one. No. Yeah. Luckily, I did not look too closely at the rest of the list. I just sort of, you know, peeked at this one. So. Sure. Sure. All right. Well, cool. Good. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so in talk in figuring out like how to, um, approach this episode, we kind of found that it might be best to sort of take each, uh, like location or, or setting, um, and talk about the stuff that happens there. Um, and you, and you sort of pointed out that it's actually easier than even last week where you had sort of multiple threads with like different, um, characters kind of going from plot to plot, like in each, mm -hmm. you know, sort of overlapping their different plots. Whereas this one there, you know, you have like three sort of main locations with Cobol, mm -hmm. Caprica and sort of the fleet, you know, mm -hmm. ships. Uh, but it's like the same characters in each spot. So it's kind of easier right. to sort of segregate the storylines and um, talk about each one. So I wanted yeah. to start off um, with the Cobol plot. Um, or the COBOL setting. Um, and there's kind of two things to talk about. I don't know how much we need to talk about the first one, just mm -hmm. sort of noting um, you have Crashdown and Tyrrell and 
you know, it's like, it's pretty much immediate, right? Like we, we sort of ended their part of the story last time with them like crashing down onto Cobal. And mm -hmm. like, now we see, like, we missed the actual landing, but this is like immediately after that, right? Like this is screaming yeah. and fire and blood, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, you've got Baltar sort of zoning out, you know, it's kind of like one of those, um, like I think of like maybe like Saving Private Ryan or like where, where they mm -hmm. try to like show like, the shell shock of battle right. or a crash or something in the movie. So it's kind of like has that vibe to it. Um, only this time it's got an imaginary head Cylon um, mm -hmm. helping him get out. Um, and then it sort of turns into crash down who's physically helps him uh, like run away and stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. But you also have sort of the after effect of that where then you have like crash down himself sort of like, overly stressed and not really handling the situation real mm -hmm. well right like we kind of joked before about how um you know crashdown is uh sort of living up to his name <laughs> you know now mm -hmm. um but you you uh you know with him you have you have this so first of all right we're we're reminded again that like Tyrrell is not an officer, right? He's a chief. Right. So right. he's, um, you know, lower than any of the pilots who are all at least lieutenants, right? Mm -hmm. um, and which puts Crashdown sort of in the position of leadership there. But, yeah, you know, Crashdown isn't like the main pilot, right, of a Raptor. Right. Like he's, right. uh, he's the like second in command. So he wasn't even like really expecting necessarily to be the one right. in charge, but the pilot dies or, or right. maybe he's the one who's like injured or whatever. Um, no, I think the pilot got shot like in the, yeah, cause they kind yeah. of pull him out of the front right, seat. So right. there, there is no, so yeah. So, so he, even, yeah, even yeah. though he's an officer, he's not really like the one who's usually in charge, right? Like this is, this is totally like a field promotion right. for him right. um and he's not doing very well with it whereas you have Tyrrell who's been in not necessarily I don't know if he's been in battle before but he's been in you know rough situations on you know the deck and stuff mm -hmm. so like you have like like for example like when the munitions like went off unexpectedly and you know he's having to like deal with those sorts mm -hmm. of things um and just being yeah. in like a sort of shop kind of environment, you can imagine that there's like, right. he's a guy who can think on his feet and like, right. you know, Jerry rig, uh, uh, whatever needs to happen. Like that's sort of what he does on a regular basis. Right. Uh, maybe, Not to mention being in charge of like, however many, you know, dozens or right. hundred subordinates he has and is used to being the right. guy who gives direction and delegates and all that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Like Crashdown is is the one usually taking orders and mm -hmm. being, you know, like, I mean, he might be a good independent thinker, but he's not a good leader per se. Right, right. Um, right. And so, even back yeah. to the miniseries of, okay, these are all untested untried rookies and all this and then 
you know, it's, it's Crashdown is the replacement for Hilo. So you even right. get that, like, even Hilo and Boomer, who seem fairly young and inexperienced, have more experience than Crashdown does. You know, pretty much what he's done since we saw him turn up is, like, kind of co-pilot and take orders from Boomer and, like, search for resources, you know? Right. Like, we haven't, it doesn't seem like he's ever had any sort of command, right. you know, position before. Right. He might have had a class in war college once right, but right. like no actual practical experience or anything right right so you i like the little uh him trying to keep it take it in stride as tyrell subtly suggests like right tactics to him you know and he can see one half of him one half of him is probably grateful for the advice the other half is furious that he has to be given this advice from his right. subordinate you know and those two or, sides are or that he didn't realize it on his own think it whatever. think it himself yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah. it yeah it i mean um i've seen a few you know war movies in my time i wouldn't say that's like something i know you know no expert in but i wonder if that's like a kind of common motif in that like i'm thinking of um mm. there's a whole episode of band of brothers which is one of my favorite miniseries ever but um mm. and actually it's the same people of saving private ryan so there's a nice sure. connection there but there's like a whole episode where they are saddled with you know the the officer you know a lieutenant or whatever he's not he's hired up but he is you know one of these guys not quite like Crashdown, but has you know all of the the perks and comes in as you know the you know the the trained officer and no no leadership skills no battle experience you know and mm -hmm. by the time you get to halfway through the series at this point these you know regular guys are hardened and expert and deadly and all this stuff and they have to suffer you know under this you know absolute dead weight of a leader and you know crashdown's not quite that bad yet but it reminds me of that of that seems like a a thing which is just bound to happen every mm -hmm. once in a while in the military if you have these very strict hierarchies of you are going to eventually have a leader who is not qualified but because of the strict rules you have to do what they say you know right. and for someone like Tyrrell you can see the him willing himself to be patient you know sure. when he knows he would absolutely know what to do in and, this situation and you also get the sense with Tyrrell that this isn't the first time that that's happened sure <laughs> like like this isn't like you know, him just coming out and saying, oh, you're an idiot or whatever. But he also, like, maybe he has said that before to the past. So he's like, okay, how do I approach this constructively yeah, <laughs> in a way yeah. that doesn't get us all killed? You yeah. know, it's to, you know, just offer advice or say, oh, well, you know, if we move up the mountainside, yes, you're right, we will be more visible for the people picking us up, but we'll also be more visible to the Cylon. So maybe we right. should try to find cover instead, just as a suggestion, sir. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, like, like that he's, this isn't the first time maybe he's creatively offered, uh, you know, some advice to a superior. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah. Um, which, you know, 
good, yeah. good for him. This is a moment where we like Tiro. So yes. not that I, not that I think we necessarily dislike him, you know, no, but now, I but. mean, in this situation, it, it's, it's, you know, it is, there's a contrast between who would you want to be taking orders from in this situation? And clearly Tiro comes out ahead of, you know, crash down, but, uh, that's too bad because they're sort of stuck with him. So it kind of, I mean, that is kind of all we get from them this episode. And so it's sort of setting up a situation for next season, you know, okay, mm-hmm. now we're in this location where we're crashed and waiting for rescue with an inept leader, you know, and, you know, hopefully they can kind of keep their heads down, but that is sort of remains to be seen where it goes from there. Sure. Um, yeah. So we also have, <laughs> I mean, speaking of like ineptitude and not being a great leader. Inept leaders. Um, well, yeah. So there's that. Uh, with, or just with Baltar, <laughs> But also like the fact that like Crashdown doesn't seem to notice that he's wandered away. Oh, like, yeah. Like, yeah. you know, there's, there's no... Um, trying to keep a head count or anything going on here. <laughs> right. Um Baltar just kind of gets up and walks off and yeah. you yeah. know, follows follows the imaginary Cylon in his head. Um or not imaginary Cylon in his head. A Cylon in his head, whether imaginary or not. <laughs> um Yeah. So I mean this is where you know it becomes more difficult, I think, on my part. Um, Mm -hmm. And I remember this, I don't remember everything about the first time I watched the series, but I do remember thinking like, as we were going here, like they're, they're getting much closer to indicating, I think with, with the scenes here that Mm -hmm. uh, head six is not solely head six, that there does Mm -hmm. seem to be some kind of external Mm -hmm. uh, impetus for her. Yeah. Uh, Whatever that is, you know, is it, is it Cylon technology? Is it God? Is it, you know, something right. else? Um, but the fact that they're like, you know, again, it, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is it becomes harder to sort of construct reasonable scenarios where this is just Baltar using his knowledge mm-hmm. to yeah. sort of construct ideas around what might be coming. Um, especially when you think of like, I mean, not so much the wandering through the ruins and like reconstructing what they might have looked like and that kind of stuff, because mm-hmm. sure, he's read books and seen pictures, I'm sure, like, you know, that's a mm-hmm. possibility. But when you get to the end with like, you know, looking into the cradle of light mm-hmm. kind of thing and mm-hmm. saying like, um, you know, head six sort of saying like, um, I, I forget exactly how she phrased it, but like, you know, the next phase or the next, you know, mm. uh, the next, it's like the new generation yeah, is coming. Yeah. 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 Um, like seems to be, you know, and, and, you know, and thinking, Oh, Hey, we know that Sharon's pregnant or at least right. claims to be pregnant. Like, right. like there are external factors here that he couldn't possibly have yeah. insight into that are sort of being disclosed through head six. Um, Right. So again, it becomes much harder to think that like this is just his subconscious like deducing stuff. Yeah, no, I totally 
Uh, I totally agree with that. Um, also, I, it's sort of like, and part of this is just the way it's shot and presented and the music and the light and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily mean this literally, but like, like I remember that too, like this seeming like different the first time I'd seen it, like a departure from what we'd seen before in terms of the scope of the world and the tone of it and everything. And I kind of almost want to say like a little bit of magic enters in. And I don't mean that like literally like there are things that could still be presented in a pseudoscientific way. Like, like you said, like it could be, she's still a chip in his head and she's giving him a vision of something like it's not necessarily literal magic, but magic in that sense of like, the storylines are now connected in ways that are bigger and more, I don't know, spiritual than they had been before. Like, mm. like she is whatever she is or whoever she is, he's now connected to the, you know, Sharon and Hilo and their pregnancy plot. Like, you know, you start to get a sense of, what she's been saying all this time of there's like a plan and there's a purpose and you all have places and destiny and all that kind of thing. Um, And it's hard to know exactly how much to believe it or how much to take it or exactly what that means. But this would seem to me to be, if not like total confirmation of what she's been saying, at least it's nudging us more explicitly in that direction than we've seen before where you can't just purely write her off as part of his brain telling him what he wants to hear or, you know, it seems like there's at least some, you know, uh, truth behind those kinds of thinking of things in that sort of way as they are pieces in a larger picture. And they're all sort of, connected to each other even if they're separated by you know space or he can't have any possible knowledge of what's going on in the other storylines um you know because you also get with what happens back in the fleet you're getting you know you kind of put it together that the the thing which she was kind of warning him about you know is what happens you know in the cic of you don't want to be there for that. So it's almost kind of confirmation of that too, of, oh, it's not just his brain, you know, talking to itself, but she actually has real, some sort of real knowledge of what else is going on in the world. Right. Um, Yeah. Right. Like she knows ahead of time what the plan is. And, and even that, like Boomer is gonna go do this thing, right? You know, yeah, yeah. Like that. There's, there's. It's like chess moves, right? Like that. Mm-hmm. Head six knows all these things are gonna happen. So, right. Yeah. I mean, and I get to like even uh, the scene when he's getting out of the raptor and he's sort of trapped by the flames, and you sort of get her, you know, take my hand. It's almost like. It's like when he takes her hand, he can walk through the flames. Like there's something like vaguely kind of like miraculous about it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and again, like it can you 
can you explain that away as he just makes it through? Yes. But I think the way it's presented at least hints at some of these like more, I don't know, fantastical kind of ideas. Right. And again, like, so does that mean it's, you know, like, again, is this just some sort of like trippy fugue, you know, state that he's in, you know, where he's doesn't really realize what he's doing or what's going on. Or like you said, like, is there something more, Mm-hmm. Is it magic or is it something else? Yeah, we don't know, but right. Um, but yeah, again, just sort of back to the original point that I was making. You know, it definitely like it becomes harder and harder to just describe it as completely psychological at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not yeah. not to say there's no psychology going on, just it's no. harder yeah. to describe it as only that. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Yeah. No, I I totally agree with that. All right. So yeah, so meanwhile, in another <laughs> part of the galaxy. Oh, sorry. Was there one final bit you wanted to add? No, I was just kind of saying like the completion of I think you kind of said this before we started filming or filming, recording uh is we're not uh, filming this. We're not filming. This, this is not a vidcast. Um uh, the kind of completion of Baltar's sort of, it's not a messianic arc because he's not really, you know, the, the, you know, God himself. He's sort of, he's the hand of God, right? Like he's God's instrument sure. in the plan. So, um, you know, he's the one who is going to, you know, the guardian and protector of the new generation is kind of what six says. So there's this, you know, like you said, this cradle of light, which we can kind of guess has something to do with, you know, the baby that we know is now, you know, being, uh, you know, created in Sharon. And, you know, so Baltar's role as this is his destiny that six has been telling him about. Um, Mm. And, you know, it would seem that, it seems to me like his arc has been about coming to accept it. Like we've seen many iterations and, you know, baby steps, but coming to kind of, you know, to embrace that position that he has, um, you know, so. Yeah. It's sort of the, the epitome of that by the end of this episode. So, Yes. Next section, I think we can move on. All right. Meanwhile, in another part of the galaxy. <laughs> uh, yeah, so on Caprica, uh, we've got, you know, more Hilo and Sharon. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, maybe not a ton to say about them either. Although we do get... Uh, you know, we get some some little bits of conversation. You, you know, more like irritation from Sharon. Like, I'm a person. I have feelings. Things scare me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the revelation that she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Hilo, uh, they've come to this. I, so, 
All right, they they reach this Delphi Museum, which is conveniently where Starbuck is headed as well, right? Right. Um, well, it's all about the arrow, right? Right. Everybody's and, making a beeline for the arrow. Which, and maybe I'm just forgetting something, but like I'm not, I don't remember exactly why it is that Sharon suggests this, other than, I mean, I guess the same reason that, yeah. you know, Starbuck and Roslyn are kind of going after it, but um, like it, there's less of a direct line for me mm-hmm. <laughs> between like Sharon and Hilo's need to get the arrow. Well, Hilo doesn't seem to understand it. So like, right. I guess it's really just Sharon, like her belief that getting this arrow is necessary. Um, right. Right, which, yeah, I don't know that it's ever really, it doesn't really totally work as for why Sharon sort of is motivated that way all of a sudden. It makes it makes sense to me that when they go to Cobol and are surprised to find Cylons there, that the Cylons come to the same conclusion as Roslyn, which is, oh, we found Cobol, we better go get the arrow. You know, like, so that kind of, I can kind of make that work of why, you know, number six shows up and is also looking for it because now it's a race, you know, they've both sort of stumbled on Cobol at the same time, or, you know, it seems like they both arrived at the planet and it sort of occurred to them that they're going to need this arrow if they want to, you know, go find earth. So, but why that suddenly has occurred to Sharon, um, I don't know that it's ever really uh, justified very well, but. Yeah. Um, I mean, unless she has access to some sort of hive mind and knows, oh, everybody's going for the arrow, you know, but she doesn't really say that. So I don't know that we can come to that conclusion. You know, again, begs the question, like, you know, do Cylons sort of have this hive mind thing going on? And if so, then like, why don't they all know where Sharon is? Like, right, right. Yeah. So that introduces its own sort of problems. Yeah. And, you know, maybe they're able to turn it off or whatever, but anyway, all that to say, yeah, they go to this museum where conveniently Starbucks goes as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Starbucks surprised that she makes the jump. She, you know, goes through the Cylon ships, blah, 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 makes it to the museum, stops to take her radiation meds, like, after she's already, like, disembarked from her ship and, like, apparently walked into the museum. But, you know, mm-hmm. like, that's all for show. Like, I... Right, sure. You know, you would think that she would just take that before she gets out of her ship. That's for all the that's for all the people who, if you didn't show that, would be like, "Why? Where are her radiation meds? Why yeah. isn't she dead?" <laughs> right, right. Um, Starbuck finds the arrow, gets jumped by a model six. Uh, big fight ensues. There's some trash talk and whatnot. Um, long story short, like she kills the model six by falling in on top of her into a big hole. Mm -hmm. Uh, And just as like Hilo and Sharon are coming in and Hilo sees her, 
you know, there's a reunion there. Um, mm-hmm. Starbuck tries to shoot Sharon and Hilo stops her. Perhaps betraying his true feelings for Sharon. <laughs> uh, who he keeps claiming he would like to see dead, but then never actually right. kills her and prevents Starbuck from killing her. So, right. um, yeah. So I, I know I compressed all that a bit. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that there's a lot to like say commentary wise about it. I, I mean, feel sure. free to disagree with me, but like it does all just sort of seem like plot maneuvering to get the MacGuffin, you know, to mm-hmm. presumably return at some point to the Galactica. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that MacGuffining is really what BSG is best at. So I, I don't necessarily disagree with you. Um, like, I don't think that's really its strength. MacGuffining, um, huh? If I can verb it. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I think there are, I, I mean, and also a lot of it is is the fight. So that doesn't necessarily support a lot of like analysis. Like, right. but there are little things in there that I think are worth sort of mentioning. Like, you know, we've had Starbuck be hotshot, you know, tough ace all this time. And to kind of, it's a, definitely a new color on her to see her get her butt kicked you know by number six you know which isn't it's not anything against starbuck like you know i think it's kind of another peek at to how strong the cylons are and how sort of you know formidable they can be and they barely like break a sweat when they fight you um but you know that kind of makes i think for a pretty good action scene is like it's clearly for us scrappy as starbuck is it's clearly a very one-sided fight you know mm-hmm. and she sort of gets lucky in the end but that's kind of it um yeah although and, that um, that does seem to be starbuck's mo the getting lucky like with sure. with with yeah pulling out the crazy move that nobody else would do like yeah. throwing yourself off of the ledge with her you know yeah, yeah and getting away with it um right uh also want to point out the I think they did have a brief scene together in the miniseries, but the way that they kind of established the friendship between Starbuck and Hilo, because we've had Hilo mm. by himself for so long. So it's not just like, oh hey, aren't you that guy? You look familiar. It's like they let you know they know each other really well, you know, and this is sure. like, you know we're good friends and are sort of happy to see each other. Like, I think they established that relationship pretty quickly. Mm. Um, and Starbucks kind of devastation at realizing that Sharon isn't human, you know, like there's that kind of mm. couple seconds where she kind of has to go, wait a minute, what's she doing here? And then realizes what it means. And then, you know, when Hilo doesn't let her kill her, you know, you get that kind of scream and grief just at, you know, I think just at the idea of realizing it's one of your best friends, you know, Um, not to mention she can't exactly go back and like warn them, (laughs) you know, like there's that feeling of, oh, she's now back with everybody else and nobody has any idea. 
So, yeah. um, you know, we haven't, all the Cylon reveals up until now have been people that they weren't invested in, you know, like it's been like, sure. Shelly Godfrey and Leobin and Doral and who cares about them? They're like bad guys. Whereas this is the first one where it's like one of us, you know, and right. that means something. So. Right. And even for Hilo, like he's had some time now to get used to the idea. Right. But right. Star, you know, like you said, for Starbuck, this is like her working it out within a few seconds and just reacting, which mm -hmm. we would expect from her. Right. Um, so, yeah, I don't know that there's much more to say about that. I mean, it's the end of the season. They, they have the arrow. That's kind of where we're left is, you know, we have the MacGuffin and are ready to kind of take it further into the second season. So, right. Right. Yeah. So then we can move on to uh, sort of the bigger plot here with the fleet and all of the stuff that goes on there. Um, mm -hmm. So, all right, we've got, we're sort of back to Rosalind and Adama at each other's throats again. Um, we sort of had a little while where they were kind of, uh, you know, being cordial to each other and, and sort of on the same page about stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and then depending on how you see it, uh, one or the other of them screwed up and, you know, messed up that whole dynamic. Um <laughs> Or both of them screwed it or up. Or both of them did something to screw up. Yeah. And I mean, the commentary in the episode seems to be that Rosalind, I mean, at least from like Adama and even Lee, who ultimately defends Rosalind from, well, during the coup, he doesn't mm -hmm. defend her from it because it still ends up happening. But, right. but even Lee, like in that moment, he's like, it's not that he agrees that what Rosalind did was a good thing. It's that he just disagrees with the method of, you know, imprisoning mm -hmm. her and, and using a military coup to make, you know, force her hand. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, he still calls what she did a bad decision, which right. is to ask right. Starbuck, you know, to go. Um, also, also, I love I love the line from Ty where uh right near the beginning where um adama says something like oh maybe she was coerced and and ty's like nobody can coerce starbuck i've tried yeah. <laughs> like like you could totally see that um and i mean like we've seen him try like yeah you know yeah. Like, not but you just like you get that that sense of like his frustration i speak about, from experience yeah, yeah. like like not not <laughs> yeah. that like Starbuck is so noble that, yeah, you know, she's above being uh, uh, coerced in some way or whatever. But that, like, Ty is so repugnant that he's actually tried to coerce her, right, and he's right. irritated that he couldn't right, do it. Right. Um, so it's just kind of funny. But yeah, yeah um, which you know, I mean, we know 
you know, and this goes back to depending on how you look at it, right? Like we know that I'm not saying that Roslyn is necessarily right, but why did Starbucks choose to accept Roslyn's uh, quest, right? Mm -hmm. It's because when she tried to talk to Obama or tried to ask him about what was going on, Obama, I said, I did that again. (laughs) Adama, Adama lied to her. Right. Uh, Right. And, and, was very cagey in his responses and stuff. And so that, that, you know, you know, about earth and the location and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, that just, it's not that Starbuck was coerced or that she was fooled. It's that Adama himself, someone who Starbuck thought she could trust, Mm -hmm. uh, found out to be was found out by her to be untrustworthy and Mm -hmm. so you know again like yes starbuck is breaking a a command or or you know not doing what she's supposed to do but that's because adama himself first sort of broke that trust with her Mm -hmm. um so again like like where you know it's not quite a chicken in the egg because Adama did that first, but also, you know, with, with Roslyn, like Roslyn's sort of the one who gives Starbuck that opportunity to act on, uh, the sort of breaking of faith that Adama Mm -hmm. presents. Yeah. And I kind of agree that, uh, even though the, orthodox opinion among all the military in this you know episode seem to agree that Adama's right and Roslyn's wrong um I'm not at all sure that we have to agree with them you know like oh yeah like yeah. I'm thinking to back to the mini series of you know when they first meet and it's very tense and you know that's like the first question Roslyn has is are you going to stage coup and right. he he denies it like how what a you know offensive notion i love our who i would never and it's like okay well <laughs> here we are you know yeah not that much longer later, and yeah. you know and they were working well and getting closer and then suddenly we have a disagreement and where a compromise can't be reached and yeah you definitely seems willing in this moment to overturn that vow. Um, you know, and Just so a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it's certainly, uh, I guess fault on both sides. Although in some ways I think I'd, I'd put Adama's as at a slightly worse level because it's, you know, I mean, was Rosalind being underhanded in the way she went about this? Yes. Is she doing things that Adama doesn't want her to do? Yes. Is she making a bad decision? According to some people, the answer is yes. But like Adama's is sort of that breach of what his duty is, you know, as the officer and the commander of the military. You know, he's the one sort of going against, I guess, you know, the ideal of what that means. And and, Um, and and not just just 
an ideal, but his own ideal. Right. Like yeah. his own yeah, stated yeah. ideal and right. presumably right. his love for civil rights, you know, things that he right. has sort of said he upholds. Which he's been the champion of even right. more than Roslyn at some points, you know? It's sure. Roslyn who's been the one and said, go get Tom Zarek and take him down. And, you know, all this stuff where Zadama wants to talk about it and, like, you know, negotiate and all that. So, like, um, yeah. Hmm. And actually, I want to point this out. It's It's subtle, and some of it is, you know again, reading in maybe more like speculating based on things, opinions I have about later, you know, character development and everything. But the one person that seems to me to not be totally on board with Adama's action is Gaeta. Um, there's like, mm. you know, one shot where it's Adama saying like, giving the okay to cut in. And, you know, there's a look at Adama that kind of says, I have an opinion here and I'm shaking my head, but I know it's not my place. Kind of like Tyrrell, like right. you're above me and I have to kind of go along and not say anything, even if I don't agree with it. Um, whereas like, you know, you know that Ty is on Adama's side. Oh yeah. L Lee seems to agree with Adama, even if he doesn't agree with his methods, you know? Sure. And even D says something about like, um, you know, she looks very uncomfortable with the whole thing. You know, you kind of get her divided loyalty between, you know, Adama on one hand and sort of Billy and Roslyn on the other. But there's that little argument between her and Billy of, um, uh, you know, tell me he's not going to do this. Well, tell me she's not going to make him do it. Like, she's putting right. that on Roslyn. Like, if she right. does this, it's her fault. And he had no choice. Um, so... Of all of them, you know, they all seem pretty firm and it's, you know, even though he doesn't have any lines, um, Gate is the one that I see as closest to the fence of maybe actually being uncomfortable with the actual action that Adama takes. Mm. So. Sure. Sure. So... Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Billy and D there. I mean, I don't know that we need to say a lot there, but it, it's another, like we've talked about how they sort of parallel. Right. Uh, right. Mini, Adama, and Roslyn. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Uh, with respect to um, the actual coup, uh and just sort of even staying on Billy there too. I like I like how we get the um the sort of out that Roslyn gives like her people, like, mm -hmm. you know, this is me, you don't have to be here. Like Roslyn almost knows, I mean, not that it's that shocking. Like she has a small security detail and right. you know, Adama has like, you know, all of the soldiers on the Galactica. So right. like when she push knows up, how this yeah, is going to go. When push comes yeah. to shove, like, this isn't necessary. It, like, it's more the show of it. And she has right. the press there. Like, you know, like, it's more it's more about making a statement than necessarily avoiding capture or imprisonment. Mm -hmm. um, but she does say, like, you know, 
hey, you guys don't have to be a part of this. And and Billy says, you know, we stand with our president. And, mm -hmm. You know, um, good for him. Uh, he stands behind her and behind <laughs> the men with guns. But, you know, sure. uh, no, I don't sure. actually I don't know. Is he behind her? I guess I don't. I'm trying to remember now. now I don't exactly, know. But um, well, there's kind of the like security in front. Right. I don't know where he's at least Rosalind behind exactly, that, but um, yes, but yes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you get the coup and you get. Well, Kai. and oh, it's worth, uh, let me just say too, after that means even more after the previous episode where we talked about, he didn't even agree with her decision in the first place. Right. Remember right. it's the whole scene of where you're going to bring down her. the government and you're an idiot and this is how it's going to go. Billy and turns yet, out to be right. He, He's right, and yet he stands with his president, sure. you know, and so there's a loyalty there that goes beyond do I agree with your decision or not? Um, you know, so. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so you have, like, like, you get the reports of, like, oh, there's, you know, they're cutting through the hall and they're coming up. You know, with all of the hall cutting, that happens like like you wonder how those get repaired i mean i guess they must do it right um, right but like this isn't the first hall we've cut through <laughs> like <laughs> like you know so i i don't know like i i feel like of hull repairing materials that we have on hand like th they're probably not that many like yeah how, how many more times can we do this um yeah yeah before we start like severely limiting the number of ships that we have. Uh, but yeah, so the coup, I mean, it's not much of a coup, right? Like it's Ty and a handful of men, you know, with blasters and rifles and stuff, mm -hmm. you know, versus a few security guards with like some handguns. Mm -hmm. um, and Lee's part of this team, which I find a little bit... You know, one of the things I find interesting, like, I could sort of understand Starbuck being part of the, you know, crew that makes up the um, incursion force on the prison ship, mm -hmm. because um, there's sort of the throwaway line where they say, like, you know, where she says, I think, like, I'm the best marksman in a ship mm -hmm. or out, you know, like, mm -hmm. so, okay, like, you want a good sniper, when you're going to take back the prison ship. I get that. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure why Lee is the one always like on these like Marine sort of things. Like, yes, mm -hmm. he's a pilot, but he's a pilot. Like he's right. the lead, you know, he's the CAG or whatever, but like, right. How does that make him? But also like, isn't he the liaison with the president, like the military liaison at this point? So like, I just, I don't quite, I mean, other than from a writer's perspective that it's convenient to have him there because he's right. like the moral conscience of the scene. Right. And we need him to I'm not, be the mutiny guy. Yeah. Right. I'm not clear why, like, from Adama's perspective, that it makes sense to have his son on this team. Regar I mean, regardless. I, I mean, wonder, I mean, they don't actually say it, but I wonder if it's because he's the liaison, like, He's supposed to be negotiator guy, you know, like, like Adama sends him there as you go talk her into some like back into sanity, 
you know? And so it doesn't have to come to an arrest or a coup because you're going to talk sense into her. And that's not what happens. Mm. You know, he turns on his own side rather than, you know, uh, argue her into agreeing with Adama's plans or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's that's probably the best. Would be my, that would be my, you know, rationalization of it anyway. Yeah. That's probably the the best interpretation. It is, it is sort of just left up to the viewer to sort of make that jump. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I guess that makes sense. Um, But yeah, so he does, uh, he does point his gun at Ty, which infuriates Ty, which is always fun when Ty is infuriated. Um, (laughs) But, uh, and you also get that look of despair when Rosalind Mm -hmm. like orders everyone to put their guns down and Lee's like, ah, crap. Like, what did I just do? (laughs) Like, Like you right. couldn't you couldn't have said that like three seconds sooner, you know, right, before right. I pulled my gun on the XO here. Yeah. Um because yeah, mutiny not a light thing. No. Um, no, I mean So yeah. Yeah, uh, moral moral high ground or not. Um right, he's right. now, you know, presumably going to the brig or or you know, was on his way there uh in this you know, in his shackles in the CIC, right? Uh, you know, when everything else goes down, um, right? Right. Any anything else you want to talk about that before we talk about that ending? Uh, no, just uh, Adama's <laughs> passive aggressive little dig about like, oh, you did your duty despite your personal misgivings, and you see the kind of like. <laughs> you know it hits its target over like you know again talking about like where we started the season again kind of like Rosalind and Adama we've had a little bit of repair work on the relationship between the Adamas and now that's you know right uh collapsed again so you know and Adama making sure that he knows what a disappointment he's being (laughs) sure sure um yeah, so they're in the CIC. Boomer and Racetrack return after their... Well, I guess we should talk about what they were doing, first of all. Yeah, that's probably um, a good idea. So while while the coup's going on, um, Adama had asked Boomer to be the one to go deliver the nuclear device to the base star mm-hmm. using this transponder that they had dug out of... Um, the Cylon ship, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, she does that. Like they go racetracks, her new partner right now that crashed down. Well, crashed right. down yes. on the planet. Um, and, uh, Boomer says she's able to do it, you know, like after almost eating her gun. Well, yeah. Uh, in the last episode. And, so she goes, there's a malfunction, they end up actually getting onto the base star, and she has to like go outside and like manually unhook the nuke from the... Well, and don't you get the impression that she kind of wants to do those things anyway? Except, so here's the thing. Like, it's not her who 
tries to fire, right? Isn't it racetrack? No, and I, I don't, I don't think she's like sabotaged it necessarily, but like, rather than call off the mission, oh, the thing is jammed. We should go back and try again. It's sort of like that thing of like, let's land. Okay, I'm gonna get out. Okay, give me five minutes. Like it just like. There's a part, of, it seems to me like, well, there's a part of her that's very curious to see what's inside this spaceship. Yeah, I think this, I think this goes back to, you know, how do you, how do you see Boomer? Like, is she a Cylon who's just really good at masking her true intentions? Or is mm -hmm. this someone who's actually like brainwashed and mm -hmm. doesn't, realize her like underlying subconscious motives mm -hmm. um and the answer to your question probably depends on what sort of way you view it right like i, I feel right. like looking at her in either of those ways gives you a different answer <laughs> sure um you know because i think i think if you see her as someone who who like truly has the best of intentions but has this sort of underlying programming that she's not aware of sort of sort of like you know sleeper agent or manchurian mm -hmm. candidate kind of right you know programming going on then it's easy to sort of see like her surface motives are that like hey the only way to complete the mission is to actually land even if that means we end up dying right you know what i mean whereas right. the subconscious motive is more like yeah, like there's something here that I as a Cylon need to connect with. Um, right. Which all that that you just said, that's sort of how I interpret her as sure. there's always these two levels. There's the rational surface motive of what she believes to be true and acts unconsciously as she's awake. And yet at the same time, there seems to be these underlying impulses, you know, that do things either in sleeper mode or subconsciously that she's not fully, you know. So to me, both those things can be true. You know, it can both sure. be, it can be that, oh, the thing is jammed. This is the only way to complete the mission. And at the same time, I am also, this also achieves my subconscious desire to get closer and get a closer look at what is inside the ship. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, for me, that's not necessarily a contradiction. Like, I think those two things can kind of work together. Yeah. Um, no, and again, I, I think it goes back to how do you view the way that she acts? Is it that mm -hmm. she's conscious she's a Cylon and that she's just really good at masking her true intentions? Or is it more of a, a subconscious thing and her, mm -hmm. you know, overt consciousness is no, I'm a person, which mm -hmm. I think we sort of get confirmation of that when she steps out and confronts the other versions of herself mm -hmm. um, and says, no, I'm Sharon Valeri. My parents were, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so. And -so and yeah. All of yeah. that kind of stuff. Like I, I feel like that reading that, overtly she thinks of herself as a human person but that there's some sort of underlying programming going on that seems to be confirmed there. yeah 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's visceral terror at what she sees. Yeah. You know, it's horror of this can't be true and I've right. got to get out of here. Right. Um, you know, which is made, you know, you know, as, as graphic as they're able to make it with all the like scary lighting and like naked Sharon's coming out of the goo walking towards her, like, you know, kind of as, you know, horror movie unsettling as, as they can do it. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, I also kind of like the way, which I don't, I didn't necessarily get until like, you know, these later viewings, but, um, you know, the way that the silence just sort of let the bomb explode, they don't really seem to, maybe they can't, but they don't seem too concerned with trying to stop it. And it seems like, you know, like to me, the analogy comes that Boomer went in and planted a bomb, but they planted a bomb too. Like she gets sent back mm. and it's sort of like, we allow her to complete this mission because she's going to go back into the CIC and explode. Um, like, you know, yeah. how literally they knew that would happen. And I, obviously that's not quite clear, but you know, I, there's a nice kind of symmetry there, you know, of each, mm. each, each team kind of plants a nuke in the other um, that kind of goes off by the end. So. Sure. And though obviously with Sharon, we've been sort of waiting for her to detonate for, you know, the whole season. So it's more than just this episode, but. Right. right. I also like racetrack a lot. I like how freaked out she gets, like how, like, she's like, this was supposed to be a routine mission. What kind of like crazy notions does Boomer dragging her into, you know, of like screaming at her to get back in the Raptor and everything. Right. Um, it's like, this is, you get the impression that that's not what racetrack thought she was signing up for, but right. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. So yeah. So we end up with Adama being shot. Yep. And, uh, twice in fact, mm -hmm. um, and sort of laying there as the blood spreads over the, you know, console mm -hmm. or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I like the kind of, it reminds me of like a Pieta, like the way he sort of sprawled and cradled very like, it's very, uh, I don't know, uh, artistically orchestrated of like, mm -hmm. You know, you have Lee cradling his head and mm -hmm. D holding his hand. Like, it's very, like, I don't know. It looks like they tried to make it look like a statue or a painting or something. Sure. Um, sure. So, yeah, not not a good situation. So you have, like, now the two leaders of the fleet. One is in jail and the other, you know, very badly shot. So... Uh, not looking great for the fleet. Right. And Boomer, you know, again, as confirmation of 
her kind of sleeper agent status looking kind of shocked at what happened. Like, you know, she goes into that sort of blank robotic thing, you know, when she shoots him, Mm -hmm. you know, it seems like it's automatic and impulsive. And then you kind of get her sort of kind of like in the very beginning in uh, water when she sort of comes to and looks around and is sort of like, how did I get here? What happened? Right. You know? Right. Yeah, definitely. So, all right. Well, that's where we end. So we'll have to come back and talk about the next episode when we get there. Yep. Well, we'll do our uh, season recap and then we'll. Oh yeah, of course. And then we'll be back for season two. But first we are going to talk about flooded. So you had a couple of production notes for this episode. Yeah. So, um, we get another appearance by Jonathan, which means of course mm-hmm. that it's a Jane Espenson episode. Oh, because, is it? Okay. <laughs> because that. she's the one who keeps bringing them back. <laughs> um, I should have assumed. And actually, so, um, her, uh, her episode, um, I was made to love you is where we also get the introduction of Warren. Right. Uh, That's right. So, you know, again, we get sort of these bit characters that she is able to sort of write into a more, um, just sort of be able to bring them back and, and kind of make them more of a focus in, in the episode or whatever. Um, we also get the introduction of Tom Lenk, uh, who plays Andrew, Andrew Wells. Um, mm. And just, I wanted to, I mean, we can talk about him character-wise, but I wanted to bring up the actor here anyway, because um, first of all, uh, Tom Lank is a Whedon regular. So we get him here in Buffy, obviously. Um, he actually mm-hmm. shows up in an episode of Angel, a future episode, which I won't you know, say anything about, but just to note uh, mm. that he does show up there. And then... Um, as the same character, or do you not want to tell me that? I will. I mean, we've seen actors show up in both shows as different characters. We've seen them, obviously, as the same characters. So could be one or the other. I won't, I won't say. Okay. Um, we also get uh, Tom Lank uh, is also, also appears in Cabin in the Woods. Um, okay. And in uh, Much Ado About Nothing, um, where he plays a hilarious... Uh, sidekick to Nathan Fillion. Uh, oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, like I said, so he becomes a Whedon regular. But um, probably most recently, what he's become really well known for, just within the last couple months or so, is mm-hmm. his Instagram feed, where if you're not familiar with it, um, he's Tommy, Tommy Lank on mm-hmm. Instagram. And he just has gone off in recreating in sort of hilarious fashion the looks of various celebrities and you know tv stars and stuff um sort of in his own versions of their dress and i i want to say it started maybe with can or or some film festival might have been sundance or something um where he just started like going off and and like you know you see like all these runway photos with like different celebrities and stuff and he just started like do it doing his own kind of recreations of that um so yeah. 
pretty funny, pretty hilarious. Got got some pretty interesting reviews. Um, there's actually we we shared on our Facebook page a little while back a little thing that he did with Eliza 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 Dushku, mm-hmm. um, from uh, uh, was it the Huntsman or or something like that? Um, mm-hmm. Where there was like a bit that they kind of did together. So anyway, um, just some pretty funny stuff. If if you haven't, if you're not following him on Instagram, just to see all the sort of funny interpretations that he does of the different celebrity outfits and stuff. Sure. Um, so yeah, so uh, he's, he's introduced here as one of the trio. Um, and like I said, we can sort of talk about his character when we, when we talk about them, but wanted to at least note uh, cause he's, he's sort of a notable person. Sure. Sure. Um, so yeah, those are all the, notes that I had. Um, so okay. where would you like to begin? So I wanted to start with kind of like going through the, the, the plot aspects of the episode before doing the character stuff. Um, they're not that they're unrelated, but you know, I think they can separate fairly easily. Um, so the main one is, you know, this uh, issue that has been brought up of Buffy's finances, Mm. Um, everybody's favorite topic. And uh, I kind of feel like even though we're still technically, you know, in like we talked about, like, okay, the show transitioned from being kind of high school to college and we haven't quite left college exactly, but you know, Buffy's not in college at the moment. At least she's not taking classes. Right. Um, and we don't ha- see much of it so far. Like, we're not, not like in season four or even in season five where you still, like, had, like, they're living in a dorm. They have, you know, uh, college parties and go to class and that kind of thing. Like, it seems like that's less of an element this season. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me, like, at least a little bit we're we're transitioning into like adulthood, like not just being a college student, but being like, you know, now that Joyce is gone and Buffy is back from the dead, you know, she has to be a fully functional adult. Um, Right. And part of that means paying your bills and making money. And like, it gets to this thing of, you know, she goes, to apply for a loan and it's like, well, here's the problem is you don't have a job. (laughs) Right. And, you know, and, you know, she kind of jokes about, Oh, I wish like, of course she has a job. It's just that she doesn't get paid for it. Um, but it's that kind of thing of with Joyce gone and her out of school, she's now, uh, not dependent on anybody. Mm. And in fact, other people are dependent on her to, you know, run the house as well as slay the demons and everything. Right. Um, so, you know, it's not like that becomes the metaphor of the week and then it gets resolved. Like, it seems like that's an ongoing concern, especially because she kind of abandons it at the end. Like she kind of says like, Hey, you guys take care of that. I'm going to, I'm going to go talk to angel. Um, so it's not like we have a real clear cut, solution to this problem but 
Right. At least it's brought up as like, this is a thing you have to think about now. And, you know, we're going to have to address it at some point. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I got a kick out of the scene where she's battling the demon and they're breaking everything in the right. in the house and trying not to because that's always driven me crazy i can't, i have a hard time i think especially from when i was a kid and like had no concept of like the value of things and got very stressed thinking about like money when you're like eight years old um always <laughs> in movies like when there's something where like the whole house gets destroyed i found that so upsetting <laughs> and so it it I got a kick out of it's like the convention of you know we can have a battle and like the staircase gets broken and and the coffee table gets collapsed and vases are spilled and all this stuff but like normally nobody says anything and then the next day it's all sort of magically put put back together right um with no no like Joyce never said like hey Buffy like you're costing me like all my savings and all this stuff. Right. Um, and normally that's fine and that's a convention and you just sort of don't think about it. Um, but I used to think about it a lot as a kid watching movies. So I, <laughs> it, it made me laugh to, like, that was me as the kid was going at the yelling at the TV, like, Oh, don't break the thing. Like, you know, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> playing with those kinds of like, genre conventions you know which i should have known that was jane espenson doing that i didn't really think about it but um you know that is definitely seems like typical of her but sure sure yeah no um so the money thing yeah it becomes uh definitely becomes yeah it's not really a metaphor like you said but it it is this is definitely Buffy growing up and and also sort of in the harshest way, right? Like it's not even just like, oh yeah, you need to make money because you're an adult now. But it's like, oh yeah, while you were gone dead in the ground, we spent all the money that your dead mother had prepared so that you and Don could live based, you know, mm -hmm. with a good life insurance policy and stuff. Um we don't actually know where it all went. It just mm -hmm. kind of isn't here anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> like, you know, it, it, again, like, it's not just like, oh, you're an adult. So you have to sort of earn your keep now. It's right. like you, you were dead. Now you're not. And we spent all the money that you could have had, had you not died. Um, right. So you don't even, you didn't even have a chance to like, live irresponsibly yeah yeah <laughs> um you just now have to deal with the fact that we didn't really keep because like this you know this was months in the making like it, it's not like you know how i mean spike said what was like 182 days or something right like this mm -hmm. isn't like oh yeah the money just suddenly is all gone like what were Willow and Tara doing? Why didn't they get jobs? And, right. you know, I mean, Anya's running the shop and stuff, but she's not really the one taking care of Dawn and them. But, like, she right. could have been, like, helping them and pointing... I mean, maybe she was pointing out all along, like, hey, you don't have the money for this. But, right. 
you know, they they all kind of chipped in, you know, to be irresponsible on this account. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's it's not like it just suddenly happened. Um, right. Right. And like, yeah, I mean, that's that's part of it is Willem and Tara move in to take care of Dawn, which is important. But also, like, they're now, you know, using resources from the household, you know, and and so now, in a way, they're all kind of dependent on Buffy. Like, Buffy now has a house full of people who <laughs> are right. counting on her to support them right. it's financially, we, it's you know? we have no money, not you have no money. Like, right, right. like we have no money, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> right, um, right. Yeah, and um, so you can also, like, sort of guess that, like, where some of this money might have I mean, I mean, I'm sure, like, it went towards food and stuff, of course. But you can also see, like, maybe Willow wasn't so good at keeping track of how much she spent on parts for the Buffy bot, you know? Or sure. like that kind right. of thing, like, or, right. or the various, like, how much exactly did that magic urn cost on eBay? <laughs> right. You know, right. like, what, where did you get the money to buy that? Um, right. Those types of things. Like, if you looked at it a little closer, you could see maybe it wasn't all spent in the wisest of manners. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get the discussion okay, what are we going to do? Um, and you have, you have Anya, um, once again, with like the helpful hints, right? Like, yeah. like this is like going back to, uh, well, if you're going to like criticize everything, then maybe you should have an idea. Oh, I have an idea. Yeah. <laughs> Here's three of them right in a row. Um, but yeah, like, you know, Anya comes up with like the practical idea of start charging people money, which I kind of, I kind of find funny how the scene plays out because this is Cordy in Angel, right? Like this mm-hmm. is Cordy saying we we need we need to be a self-sustaining endeavor. That's here. true. I hadn't thought of that, but that you're absolutely right. Yeah. And and it plays out very differently on Angel because they do mm-hmm. and like not that we necessarily get money details like like we've kind of dealt with that subject already and now we don't have to deal with it anymore right but but you get the sense that like they're at least supplementing their demon hunting you know uh higher power headache giving activities with like other investigative practices that actually pay them money right so they're they're sort of subsidizing that in other means but Buffy doesn't want to do that. Like, right, right. For whatever reason. I mean, or at least she's, you know, at the end, she sort of maybe yeah. caves a, a little, little bit tempted. to just yeah, sort yeah. of say, like, I won't be doing that. Well, you know, probably. But, yeah. you know, I yeah. mean, long story short, she's not going to be doing right. that. So, right. Right. you know. Well, and I feel like the way it's presented here, which is what everybody finds so offensive, is that you save innocent people and then you demand money from them. You sure. Know? Whereas like in Angel, it becomes like we become a service that we advertise. So people come to us 
asking for help and knowing up front that this is a cert, a paid service that we provide. Right. So they, they reframe it, you know, in a way that doesn't seem quite so like awful, you know, but I think that's what everyone here is viscerally reacting to is, you know, is this notion of taking, you know, money from people that, you know, you've saved on the street corner. Um, yeah. You know, Which... whether that's what Anya meant, you know, uh, I mean, and maybe she did, but I feel like at this point, there's enough. The the other Scooby should know Anya well. Like, like it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to me that simply saying, oh, Anya's being ridiculously capitalistic or whatever is like mm -hmm. enough of an excuse to like completely throw off her ideas. Like. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean her ideas are bad. You just might need to tweak them a little bit, you know, like, right. right. So that you can maybe, you know, have, uh, have your services be like, Oh, Hey, is a demon haunting you hire me and I'll take care of it for you. Right. Right. Which is more what angel and company did right. is, uh, they just sort of reframed it a bit. Um, but, you know, I think there is also the notion that Buffy is called and appointed as a slayer in the way that uh, Angel isn't, you know? Sure. And Which, this is more of a, right. a divinely appointed thing for her, whereas for him, it's more of like, I mean, it might be a vocation, but it's really more of a job, you know? Whereas this is Buffy's job, but also, like, if you're kind of the savior on earth are you really allowed to charge for that i don't <laughs> there's some like i can see the ethical quandary there um yeah i mean the other thing being though like one this goes back to you know the slayer with family and friends you know the watchers get a stipend and so mm -hmm. you can imagine that like in most cases you have the watcher like being the one to provide, you know, food and shelter and whatever for the Slayers using sure. that stipend or whatever. Um, you know, and, and like Giles had had his payment restored and retroactive and all that kind of yeah. stuff previously, but then Buffy died and now that's no longer the case or perhaps right. it is. We don't really know, but you know, you can imagine that that probably stopped once Buffy died or whatever. Right, um, right. So, and, and also the fact that, like, it's not just Buffy. It's mm. a lot more people than just Buffy. And so, right, right. so the question becomes is, like, you know, should adult Buffy, who doesn't really have a watcher per se, I mean, Giles comes back, but, like, we don't really know his status. Like, does that mean he's her watcher again? Or is this just right, he's right. coming back to help out for a little bit? Or what, you know, like that, we don't get that in this episode. Um, yeah. So does that mean, like, should Buffy be the one to get, like, a stipend from the Watcher's Council now? <laughs> like, you know, right. as, as sort, like, to your point, like, so it's not like you're charging people, but, you know, her her activities whatever called however they may be called do seem to be supported by this earthly institution you know of right. the watchers council and so right. does that mean they should be sort of taking care of her 
needs, especially considering that the you know the other Slayer who might you know who's the next in line, Faith, is currently it you know being supported you know by a state institution. <laughs> like they're right. not like expending any money on her, so yeah. um, you know there might be a, a reason to sort of think that would be a reasonable sort of uh, uh, conclusion. We don't get and, that at this point. I'm just saying well, that might be yeah. one wrote one art one way you could take the argument, I guess. And I've kind of forgotten that that they did establish that the the watchers got some support too, because that seems like a big inequality in the watcher system. You oh, know, yeah. like yeah. that's a that's a major oversight that we are supporting our watchers and not our slayers, you know? Um what? You know, hate patriarchy in the watcher system? No, never. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's just assumed that oh, if you're a slayer, you have a watcher; he'll take care of you. Right. Uh, like, and like right. you can see how that kind of bureaucratic technicality gets handed down and not addressed at any point. You know, like it just sort of it's allowed to just exist, and uh, and suddenly she's left there with no support from the people who should be supporting her to do this duty that they think is very important. So, um, right. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah. So the money thing comes up, uh, and yeah, I mean, there's no, there, I mean, there isn't a resolution, right? So we get, we get sort of Giles talking to her, about money and saying, Oh, we'll go through it together. And she's very, she seems very grateful for that. And I think she is, but then, yeah, like there's the call from angel and she's like, okay, thanks for taking care of this. I'm going now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to Giles is sort of like befuddlement yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, re- and then you relatable get, attitude towards your own finances. Yeah. Yeah. With the, uh, so then you get sort of the, the, other plot stuff, right? Which is also about money, among mm-hmm. other things, where you have Mathashnik, or however you say it, Mathashnik. Mathashnik. Robbing the bank. Robbing the bank while Buffy is there, and she takes care of him. Right. And even, you know, even doesn't quite completely succumb to Anya's plan, but almost does right like yeah. she she even says like i'm not saying you should pay me you know because yeah. i saved you but you know let's talk about interest rates like yeah. like yeah. this is maybe not the best way to find a middle ground but she tries it anyway and it doesn't work yeah yeah um, well and it's like it's a bank you know it, it, so it's easier to sort of it's not sure. innocent old grandmother on the street it's like you know this you know, this mean corporate conglomerate of people who won't give you a loan, you know, like, so there's a, I think she gets, there's a little bit of satisfaction there with being able to sort of, you know, demand payment, which they don't give her. Um, (laughs) Right. So, uh, yeah. Um, Yeah. So I don't know. There's not, I think, I mean, obviously the, the demon is the, the, 
kind of plot device connecting between the two halves. So I don't know that there's too much to say about him. Um, no, and he, I, think, I mean, uh, he's pretty he's pretty clearly labeled just as a mercenary. So yes, yeah, yeah. Um, but I definitely want to talk about uh, the trio, as you called them. Um, yeah. Who uh, seems like they'll be back as well because we kind of set them up and uh, don't necessarily resolve that storyline. But right. um, and yeah, and we have... get their list of plans, right? Like so, yes. they they clearly yeah. have goals that may or yes. may not come into play later. <laughs> yeah, well, and and yeah, they talk about the original goal was to take over Sunnydale. Um, so presumably I take that in the absence of the Slayer. Like they said, like we decided this like a month ago, like they're another group of people who saw an opportunity, you know, and right. they're sort of like, Hmm, right. There's really nobody watching. And we have combined, we have a certain amount of, you know, mischief that we know how to do. Um, and now they have, uh, you know, this added, uh, you know, layer of wanting to take down Buffy as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so we've got Jonathan, who we've seen before, as you said, who Jonathan, it's like every every time you think maybe Jonathan's had a breakthrough, I think things are going to look up for Jonathan now. <laughs> and then he comes back every single time and, yeah. and is found a new way to not really get it. You know, has found a new way to sort of paint himself, I don't know, the underdog secret hero of this whole thing, um, mm. but keeps falling further, you know? Right. Like, when it's, he was just like the kid that they all kind of just ignored and got pushed around. And then it's like he's in the, he's the one who's going to kill himself in the bell tower. Mm -hmm. And it's like... With earshot, yeah. And it's like, okay, he doesn't necessarily, he scares the crap out of everybody. And like, he doesn't necessarily do the right things, but he was sympathetic. Like you can understand mm. where he's, like there was an empathy with what he was going through and where he might be coming from. And then, you know, with Superstar, it's like, okay, there's still empathy that he feels overlooked and lonely but he's starting to actively do the wrong thing, you know, and, you know, subject other people to his will and his desire. Mm -hmm. And now here it's even like further where I'm losing, I'm losing the ability to, to feel sorry for him, you know, because now we've kind of got to the place where he's found other, you know, like minded friends and now he says, you know, definitively, we're supervillains, you know, and we're going to take over Sunnydale through crime. Um, yeah. So it, it's, it's this kind of interesting little fall from grace for Jonathan over the course of this series. Yeah, which, I mean, so interesting that you bring up your shot, because, again, that's a Jane Esmondson episode. So yes. this is this yeah. is her. I, you know, whatever whatever character flaws we can attribute to Jonathan, they're all Jane Espenson's fault. Sure. No, <laughs> and it's part of what makes it an interesting arc because you feel like yeah. in retrospect, you know, I'm sure it's not the kind of thing where they knew 
that they were going to do this episode back in season one. Right. But there's a nice continuity to it. Like, it feels like it has a very smooth progression from one thing to the next, you know? Um, Although it's going in a downward way to me. Um, He's becoming more, less just like the kind of, uh, you know, sympathetic but kind of pathetic, you know, or relatable guy now to somebody who is thinking of himself as, you know, one of the bad guys as our, Mm -hmm. you know, title suggests. Yeah. Um, and is embracing that. Um, right. So, um, yeah. So, okay. So yeah, we have Jonathan. Yes. Who, you know, Jane Espenson didn't introduce, but she is sort of the one who built him up through earshot and superstar and, and a few other episodes. Right. Um, she seems to be the one who consistently, you know, brings him back yeah. <laughs> one way or the other. Um, yeah. We have Warren, who was yes. also introduced in a Jane Espenson episode with right. um, I Was Made to Love You. Right. Uh, and then now we have uh, a third member of the trio, uh, yeah. Andrew. Yeah. So there's a brief mention of sort of the connection that Andrew has. Um, did did you right. catch where he... Yeah, he says his brother was the one who sent, like, the dogs to the prom. Yeah. Right? Right. Um, which, so just for context, since you brought up Earshot, um, is only two episodes after that. So you have right. uh, Earshot, you know, then there's, like, another episode, and then there's the prom, um, which is the episode, so speaking of, Jonathan is the episode where Jonathan gives Buffy the class protector award. Right. Right. Um, Oh, Jonathan, how far are you fallen? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, yeah. So, right. So Andrew is Tucker is the name of the, the guy in that episode who releases the hellhounds and like trains them. Remember he like trains them by watching like cheesy, like prom movies or whatever. And Um, trains them to attack people in prom outfits uh andrew is really really upset uh you know like that he he doesn't want to be confused with his brother right so um he 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 really wants to distinguish himself um by by with his monkeys yeah yeah flying demon monkeys his flying demon monkeys that uh he set during like a school play or whatever and and right um you know we that's like an episode we didn't see right like this right, is like right. normal sunnydale stuff that just happens sort of in the sidelines and um yes we never uh never and so without spoiling anything i will i will say that we do see the trio again um and it sort of becomes a running gag that like nobody remembers who andrew was because he wasn't in any of the events that happened earlier, right, like right. in the in the thing, so it's just kind of right. just kind of becomes funny, uh, sort of reference. Yeah, no, it's interesting because like Jonathan, obviously we've seen the most, so I feel like I have a real strong sense of his journey. Warren, he hasn't had so much of a journey as much as was in like that one episode. So I already like right. He's kind of the the one you're primed to sort of not like, you know, like. Uh, 
you know, and he's the one who seems to me to be the most down with things like killing Buffy, you know, like Andrew's the one saying like, well, murder's not good and we can get in trouble for it. Jonathan even says like, okay, not Buffy because she's saved me several times and everything. Whereas it's it's Warren who's the most down with that, like in saying like, you know, um, it's horror us and, you know, this is my mom's basement, so it's my decision, and, you know, this is what we should do. Right. Um, so he seems, like, the most, it, like, ruthless of the three. Um, and as the guy who kind of created all the, the the sex bots, that's sort of not necessarily that surprising. Like, we weren't really right. exactly right. invited to like him from the start. No. So, um, you know, that seems to be kind of pretty consistent. Um, but yeah, Andrew is the one that we don't know. So in some ways, kind of the most interesting because I don't have any context for him. Sure. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the things that I noticed the most was the thing about, you know, the prom and the brother and kind of, you know, how much cooler his flying demon monkeys were when, than his brother's, you know, hellhounds. Right. Um, and then his argument against the murder you know uh you know he says we're talking about murder uh but aside from the moral issues and the mess we can get in trouble so he's sort of the the most reluctant of the three maybe Mm. um to be super villains um or he's the most worried about the consequences and what does it mean and everything so um not that that's a huge barrier because he seems to be enjoying the crime and everything and, uh, and the benefits, but you know, on the scale of the three of them, it seems like he's the, the most reluctant to kind of embrace, you know, the bad behavior and everything. Hmm. Um, so yeah, interesting little setup. We'll have to see uh where they go from there um yeah anything else about them before we move on uh no i mean you know they're they're kind of funny but yeah they're it's hard to call them evil per se right like sure like and i think this is why you know we went with the you know i'm not a bad guy like Right. Obviously, Willow's the one who says that, but like, right. these aren't these, certainly not your sort of typical villains. But you know, they do get a demon to steal lots of money for them, and then turn it loose on the Slayer. So uh, they're not exactly harmless either. Like, right. you know, whatever their intentions or desires or what have you. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, I I think that's that's all for now with them. Okay, uh, so kind of going to the main characters, um, starting with Buffy. Yeah, we're you know continuing the story of her coming back, um, and you know especially that kind of. Stepfordy thing that we talked about from the last episode 
is sort of still in play where, you know, even more so in this episode than the last, she's going out of her way to say she'll take care of things. Don't worry. She's making jokes. She's doing and saying all the things she should be saying. And yet there's still this disconnect, you know, that everybody can sense, you know, between that sort of uh, act and how she really feels, you know, so you get the, the times where she sort of either goes off by herself or else just kind of stares into space and isn't really listening to what, you know, um, people are saying, um, you know, and even like, even the jokiness is like not quite right. Like her joke about, oh, we'll burn the house down and live off the insurance. Like nobody laughs, you know, there's that kind of like horrified moment of, oh my God, is she serious? Like, what is she, you know, and, and you can see she's trying to be, you know, goofy, buffy, but you know, it's not working quite the way it should be. Um, you know, and even like Willow's, uh, the scene where Buffy is, um, you know, uh, hitting the punching bag and Willow is happy that she's angry, like just so that she's demonstrating some sort of emotion. Um, you know, so Willow's picking up on her sort of, you know, lack of emotion that she's been having and everything. So, um, yeah, kind of wanted to bring that up. It kind of, she, there's definitely um, a lot of warmth in her reunion with Giles, um, you know, and she opens up about some of that stuff to him, kind of telling him, you know, uh, yeah, it's taking a while and I still don't feel right. And, you know, uh, it, it's not sleeping that well and all this kind of stuff. But still, you still get the sense that she's trying to downplay um, how bad it is. Um, and even at the end, it's kind of like, okay, good talk. But then he kind of goes to, I don't know, touch her or comfort her or something. And she kind of just gets up and leaves. Like, he kind of clearly thought that was a better talk than it really was. Because she sort of just leaves in her own world again. Um, but it's still really only spike that she's like totally being honest with um which is interesting yeah yeah well right so throughout the episode you get like a few moments like you said like with giles and you know when she's angry and and willow sort of comments on the oh you're angry and that's good and then, of course, at the end, when she rushes out with Angel to mm -hmm. go see Angel, like she's clearly excited and anticipatory, I guess. Like, I, mm -hmm. I don't know what the exact emotion is there, but like, you know, it seems the most excited she's been about anything since, you know, yeah. coming alive again, which isn't to say a whole lot, but she certainly seems to want to leave right away. Like, yes, yes. Um, you know, to go see him. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're getting, while, you know, this isn't quite her. So with the last episode, right, we got, we had like, 
yeah, you called it like the Stepford moment of where she's she's sort of like putting on what she thinks others expect her to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think I feel like at least in this episode we get a few genuine moments of mm-hmm. emotion and whatever. So I, you know, does that mean sort of that she's breaking through a little bit, or that you know? maybe she's forgetting a little bit what heaven was really like or you know mm-hmm. what whatever she called you know i mean she called it heaven but like you know the peace mm-hmm. that she felt like maybe she's right. sort of forgetting that a little bit and and learning you know again to be happy here on earth or that kind of thing um you know i i don't we can speculate um about exactly what's going on but i do feel like we at least get a few moments of those sort of genuine emotions where she's not just kind of flat and emotionless. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. No. And I think kind of going back to what I was saying, I think the strongest ones are with Giles and with Spike, Mm -hmm. you know, at least in this episode, you know, the ones like that does seem to be genuine um you know happiness at having Giles back and uh you know there's definitely especially in the context of I have to be the grown-up for everybody you know it's nice that Giles walks into the room because he's still the most grown-up you know he can still be the guy who um gives you that kind of you know, wise advice and everything. Um, so it's sort of a good moment for him to sort of re-enter. Um, yeah, and with Spike, I mean, there's there's the honesty of being able to talk about things openly, but also a genuine warmth with him that I don't think we've... There was sort of a a bit of a truce at the end of last season, but here she seems kind of genuinely pleased to see him, mm. you know? It's sort of like, hey, Spike, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, gone are the days of Spike, what are you doing here? Get off my property, you know? Yeah. Or even like, Spike, I will tolerate your presence because you will help protect Dawn. But like, you know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, there's Spike. He's like, this is a thing. And now we can kind of sit and chat for a few minutes. So Right. Like there's actual companionship there in a way that I don't think we've necessarily seen before. Sure. Sure. Um there's also the fact that like she was listening in on Giles and Willow and her their conversations. So yeah. maybe Spike is a welcome sure. respite from that. Alternative to that. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, No, and I think that's a good point because it's not like she's finding this uh, relationship to Spike under in a vacuum. It's mm -hmm. like it's happening because of the circumstances of what's going on and him being the only one who can in any way relate to what she's been through. So there's there's a lot of ways where he, he is the preferable alternative to what she's been through which isn't necessarily saying that much, Um, you know? So it's, 
you know, like even her line about like, I can be alone with you here. Like, okay, you here is better than being sort of trapped by myself. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're the best option, but you know, sure. Um, you know, they both kind of admit, well, we're not too big on crowds, so we can kind of be alone together is sort of where it is at the moment. And he certainly keeps coming back. So, <laughs> you know, which is no surprise. I mean, obviously, it's been a one-sided sort of relationship for a while. So uh, now that they are sort of getting along, of course, you have Spike sort of turning up, you know, for his visits. So. Right. Um, and also, from a writer's perspective, it teases all the Spuffy fans. It does. I mean, again, I'm still still trying to wrap my brain around what you said about Marty Knox and not being a fan of Spuffy because season six is uh, banging it a lot harder than uh, in previous. Like that was certainly, I feel like the spike half of that was certainly a thing, but this is now a different tone of, okay, there's something mutual. Like, is it, romantic on Buffy's side not necessarily but at least they're like actually seem to be enjoying each other's company you know mm. so sure you know trying to figure out what that means in terms of like where do you approach that from like a writing point of view um because it because what you said was, you know, she thought it wasn't healthy. Well, it's a lot healthier right now than it's ever been in the past. You know, I'm not saying it's healthy, but it's healthier, you know, than it than it was. So um, it's just interesting. I'm not quite sure I get, I think I have to wait and see kind of where it goes because I'm not quite sure where they're coming from, from like a writing perspective, but. Sure. Yeah, and that's that's fair. All right. Um, so we should talk about Giles. Speaking of Buffy overhearing Giles and Willow. Yeah, right. We should talk about them a little bit. Um, yeah, that's an awful, awful fight. Yeah. Like one of the... I think, like, one of the worst, like, you know, uh, I don't know, arguments that we've seen between the Scoobies before. Hmm. You know? I'm sure there are other bad ones, but it's up there, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely up there. I'm try I mean, I'm trying to think. I'm always hesitant to say. Right. Something definitive. I, the but, worst. Yeah, but yeah. I can't I mean nothing else is coming to mind off the top of my head, so Yeah, uh, so I mean and you know as these things are, it's kind of rough on both sides. You know, like Giles the harshness of his lecture, you know? Like he does not pull his punches, mm -hmm. you know. Hits Willow in every place that it hurts, you know, calling her 
stupid and yeah. arrogant and an amateur um and like uses all of the you know strongest insults he can think of for her um but on the other hand willow is being all those things you know and sure has been sort of you know reckless and i mean even beyond that i think what kind of really sets him off is her bragging about it you know it's not just like yeah oh geez this was a really dangerous thing that we did i'm so glad it went off well it's like she's now like polishing that trophy and showing it off like look at what i did i'm the best you know yeah you can congratulate me now um right I and i did it without you and I'm like all this stuff, you know, so she's just asking for it. Yeah. So, and I always find that an interesting turn in that sentence where she says, maybe the word you're looking for is congratulations, because mm -hmm. I always, and no matter how many times I've seen this, I always expect her to say, like, I always think that she should be saying, you know, maybe the word you're looking for is thank you. Like, sure. like that Jayo should be expressing appreciation but she doesn't go there she goes for current graduation she wants accolades mm -hmm. for that yeah. not like she she's looking for someone this is like she's back in school and she's looking for the teacher to give her an a yeah right not right not that she did something nice for someone else but right. that she did something right accomplished for herself right, right. um which is why she's bragging she's baiting giles this is i'm the student right trying to get kudos from the teacher you know yeah which makes it all the more cutting when he cuts her down you know not yeah. only does he not congratulate her he destroys her yeah. um yeah and that's true like to say thank you would make it about buffy but congratulations is about willow right you know exactly. it's not about thank you for bringing her back. You know, it's about look what you did and we should all sort of bow down and, you know, give you and, praise. And marvel. And, yeah. and, and like she even, you know, says, I thought you would be impressed. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and Giles is, and, and she talks about, you know, I did what nobody else could do. And Giles says, no, there are others who can do it. You just don't want to meet them. Like, this is definitely Willow, you know, this is the opposite of like sweater, you know, wearing uh, meek yeah. Willow. Like this, mm -hmm. this is Willow who knows her abilities and actually overestimates her abilities rather than mm -hmm. underestimates them. And, you know, to the point where she believes that she's unique. Well, she's not unique. She's maybe one of a rare few, but those others are not good people. And that's where we get, mm -hmm. you know, we get her saying, I'm, I'm not a bad guy. Like I'm, I'm one of the good guys. And Giles's point is like, the good guys don't do things like this. Right. Um, right. Like, right. That's the point is it's not about, can you successfully do this? It's what does doing this do to you? Right. You know, like, yeah, you can successfully do the spell. Does that mean that it's righteous? you know, or morally good. No, you know, like you're 
your motivations, you know, can be pure, but there are certain actions that, you know, are bad, no matter who you are. Um, So, yeah. And there's definitely, you know, again, looking at this in context of sort of even going back to, you know, Tara's comment um, back before she has had her brain sucked by glory of, you know, it, it scares me how good you're getting. Like this is, this is, you know, this is a continuation of a, a trend yeah. that we're seeing with Willow. Um, not just in an increase in ability, but an increase in her own uh, reliance on her ability and an increase in her own uh, view of how she sees herself. Um, mm-hmm. as a powerful being, and so the other the other thing in this scene, um, and it's such a, I mean it's such a great scene because mm-hmm. you you because Giles is usually so British and therefore reserved, and because Willow has historically been you know meek reserved Willow, yeah. like this is both of them going at each other and and with no reservations, yeah. um, and like you said you know Giles you know, pulls out all the stops and, um, you know, tells her she's lucky to be alive. You rank arrogant amateur. And, you know, you get Willow right back at him saying, you know, I'm powerful. Maybe it's not a good idea for you to piss me off. I mean, that, that's a, that's a threat. Like that's not Mm -hmm. even like a, a thinly veiled threat. That's a threat, like straightforward. And it like the, the, one of the so i i i always sort of link this scene in my mind with um oh what was the Vince Vaughn Jennifer Aniston movie um where there's a scene where like they're a couple uh oh the, I know oh, the, the, br- the breakup uh, right. Where, where, like, it starts out kind of lighthearted ribbing, and by the end of the scene, they're both like yelling at each other, like visceral, uh-huh. like, like this doesn't quite reach, quite reach that level, but it gets. Uh-huh. I feel like it gets close, mm. uh, and obviously, like a different dynamic. They're not, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend or anything, but they're, you know, their relationship is a close one, and certainly. Uh, certainly there's a, a intensity and, and an escalation in this scene that, you know, it sort of reaches at the end. But the yeah. thing that like, like it's not even that, that like gets me, it's the immediate reversion of Willow after that mm-hmm. moment. And when, you see it on her face. You see like her face fall, like as she realized, like, well, like, that's the thing. I'm not sure it, if she does realize. Like, or does, yeah, maybe realize is too strong of a word, but it's almost two different people. Right. Like, those two lines are delivered. Like, one is with such venom, and the next minute it's, oh, come on, Giles, I don't want to fight. You know, like, right. she totally drops it, like, in a second. Yeah. And, you know, I think the look on Giles's face is, like, he's forming a response or, or maybe deciding whether to respond. And mm-hmm. then she does that. And, you know, I, I'm not sure, like, I, I don't know 
it seems to me like Willow is not wholly in control there. Mm. Um, like, I don't think it's like a decision to say like, oh, I'm, I'm getting too angry. So, you know, I should calm down. Like, sure. I think it's just, she gets angry and then she goes back, which maybe implies that she's not wholly in control. Right. Um, but Willow, or uh, sorry, Giles seems to, he doesn't say anything, but there's definitely like a moment of a look and then he kind of looks away and is like, mm-hmm. like you get that sense that like he, he knows there's something going on here. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, so yeah. I don't necessarily want to belabor the point, but that, that, that suddenness of that reversion always sort of gets me at the end of that conversation yeah absolutely I agree with that yeah and I think like so much has been made of uh Buffy's state of mind and even like magically like what happened to Buffy did she bring anything back with her is she fully there is whatever and it's like yeah this raises the question of Willow's state of mind after you know like like okay like if she's not in control what does that mean does that mean you know she's embracing this kind of power and losing connection with that old kind of willow Mm. um does that mean something more literal like maybe she brought something back with her you know like maybe she's not control because there's something demonic going on sure Um, yeah we don't we i I mean giles sort of brings up the idea that you know, we don't know where Buffy was and we don't know how it's affected her. Right. Which is the first time anyone not Buffy has implied that there might have been, you know, mm-hmm. something wrong, um, you know, about where she was and how it affected her. Um, of course, right. probably not in the way that any of them are thinking, but. Right. Um, right. But I don't think. They're also focused on Buffy. This is the first time somebody's noticing a change in Willow. Right. Um, right. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, well, very interesting. It, except Spike. Previously. Sure. In the last episode, right? Because sure. he was yeah, the one right. who sort of implanted the idea that maybe there was, you know, something wrong. Uh, some reason why Willow wouldn't didn't tell him yeah yeah and then that sort of got Xander thinking but Xander's pretty much dropped it at this point about whether Willow might have known you know if something could have gone wrong or not um right 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 you know but again like that's I don't know how much that would register with the other Scoobies of you know, a change in Willow versus just, you know, her not wanting to necessarily be stopped, you know, with regard to raising Buffy if, if she could, but anyway. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, something of a disturbing Mm -hmm. uh, conversation between Willow and Giles. Yeah, Um, definitely. Before we leave them, Got a got a note to Giles's comment about well I know I'm back in America now that I've been knocked unconscious yeah uh, and his continued <laughs> uh, attempts yeah. 
yeah, you know. It's just like old times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway. Um, well, we're just about at our time, but wanted to finish quick with Xander and Anya. Yeah. Um, who Anya's still wants to make that announcement. Xander's still, uh, at this point, I think we can say finding excuses to stall, <laughs> you know, like it, his excuses are becoming more and more thin, you know, of, oh, we want to wait till Buffy comes back. Oh, we want to wait till this. And, and, and they're kind of getting vaguer, like wait till things are settled or like what is, we don't necessarily even know what that means. And Anya's losing patience with that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and she even kind of says like, she almost kind of goes along with it and then catches herself. Like they've had this conversation over and over right. and she's been letting herself get talked into it and letting it go. But you know, she, she's noticing now that that's happening over and over again. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and a, it's a little, a, a little reluctance from Xander. I mean, it's hard to, put it any other way at this point yeah um, right no he brings up like you know i'm still getting used to the miracle of a steady paycheck and getting out of my parents house and right you know the husband thing's a big step and you know it, you know but it, and it's it's the uh he, he he uses the sort of um you know what's the saying that the perfect is the enemy of the good right like mm -hmm. i want every step to be just right like mm -hmm. Well, it's never going to be just an impossibility. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're basically waiting for never, and that's Anya's point, right? Like, you know, forever can't start if it never happens, or whatever. I, I yeah. forget exactly how they phrase that, but you know. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, Xander goes. It's kind of if I understand the marriage thing, it's kind of a forever deal. And Anya says, "Not if you never get started." Like, right, right. Yeah, precisely. So you know. There you go. Yeah, I don't know that I have a lot more to say about it. Just you're right. Like it, it does seem to be that he's more on the excuse side of things at this point than uh, maybe is strictly necessary. Right. Yep. I think I think that about covers everything. So. Yeah. Yep, we have. Uh, an episode of Angel next week, and yes. and the recap of season one of BSG, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. See you then. Mm -hmm.